So Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Let's read God's word together. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. We need it. Uh, we are a people who need to be awakened again and again and again. Paul tells us in the book of Colossians to seek the things that are above and how prone we are to seek the things that are below. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to true reality, that you would open our eyes to see the the preciousness of your kingdom, that you would open our eyes to see the preciousness of Christ Jesus, who he is in his identity, perfect God and perfect man. We would see his precious work, his work as our mediator who died in our place, who was raised and who was seated at your right hand and who will come again. You know, Father, we pray that you would awaken us to see the terrors of your coming judgment. Father, we do not want to live in delusion. There is a coming day when you will judge the world by a man, Christ Jesus himself. And so, Father, we desire to flee the wrath that is to come. And so, Father, would you press these realities in upon our hearts and we pray that they would make a a real impact in how we live. That they would make a real impact on the, the lives that we pursue what we do with sin, how we think of sin, and how we act in light of sin. And so, Father, we need your grace this morning. Would you apply your word to our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' precious and good name. Amen. So as we're moving through the Gospel of Mark, we can ask this, this question, Who is the real enemy in the Gospel of Mark? Who or what is the Lord Jesus Christ striving against? And as we remember the many scenes that we have already traveled through in Mark's Gospel, we can point our fingers at many external enemies. This morning we can point to the enemy of sickness and death. In the Gospel of Mark, at every turn, Jesus is met by those who are sick, men, women, and children, the rich, and the powerful, and the poor, and the weak, and they all suffer greatly. Their bodies are ravaged by sickness, and human flourishing is cut short because of it. We can also point to the enemy of the scribes and the Pharisees. We find that these men are, are stuck on their man-made traditions, and they are, they are set on, on boasting up their own pride. 
We find that these men in their pride and in their traditions take every chance they get to argue with Jesus, to debate with Jesus. They even plot how they're going to destroy Jesus. And we can even point to supernatural enemies. Satan and his workers are found everywhere in the story that Mark tells us. Satan is found found tempting Jesus in the wilderness. His demons seek to destroy and torment the children of Israel. We see the fruit of the kingdom of darkness before us. So as we look over the story that Mark tells us, we can say that there are some fearsome enemies in Mark's gospel. They attack from every angle, bodily, spiritually, politically. But as we look into Mark's story, we soon find that this list that we have compiled already this morning is incomplete. We have not listed one crucial enemy, an enemy more fearsome than all the rest. This great enemy cannot be fought with a sword or spear. It cannot be subverted through political schemes. It cannot be driven out with a powerful word. And this is not the news that we wanted to hear this morning. And so we ask, well, well, what is this enemy? Well, we find this enemy residing in the hearts of of the disciples. This enemy is the life and power of sin. And as we examine the situation of Jesus' disciples, these 12 men, we find a troubling reality. Though these men have made much progress in the gospel of Mark, they've heard the call of Jesus. Jesus came to them and said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And what did the disciples do? Well, they follow Jesus. They respond in faith and obedience. They leave behind their fishing nets and their their fathers and their tax booths and they make their way with, with Jesus. And we see that these men have labored with and for Jesus. They have went out into Israel calling others to repent, and they've cast out demons in Jesus' name. Even more, they've listened to Jesus. They've taken in his, his teaching again and again. They've witnessed the many mighty deeds of Jesus, and even they have confessed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the, the promised Savior and King of Israel. But even with all of this progress, with all of this change, with all of this growth, they yet have a remaining principle within them that resists and opposes Jesus and his purposes of grace. We can ask, well, why is it that disciples still act without faith? Why are these men still controlled by fear? Why is it that these disciples still crave and, and desire the first place? Why is it that these men still act with envy and spiritual pride? Why are they shrouded with with spiritual misunderstanding? Jesus speaks of the cross and they don't get it. Well, the answer lies in the fact that sin works powerfully within them. And as we seek to understand our own place in this story, we we find that our situation relates to the situation of the disciples. And if you are in Christ this morning, you have indeed made much progress in the Christian life. In Christ, we have been made alive. We've been born again through the powerful working of God's Spirit. In Christ, we have heard the gospel preached and we have responded with faith and love. Our our hearts have been inwardly transformed. In Christ, we have received the promised Spirit. And Christ, through this Spirit, lives powerfully in each one of us and exerts His new life in us. Even more, in Christ, we have been named sons and daughters of God himself. However, in light of all of these glorious realities of God's work in us, in light of how far we have come from where we once were in death, 
If we take an honest glance at our our spiritual mirrors, we soon learn that all is not well within us. We soon learn and, and find that our conformity to the will of God, the law of God, doesn't quite match up to where it should be. And as we poke and prod around our hearts for any length of time, we still find pride lurking there. We still find lust lurking in there. We still find covetousness lurking in there. And they're exerting and and working out their, their influence in our lives. And the sad truth is when we examine our own hearts, we find sin still remaining within us. And like the disciples, there is yet this remaining principle of sin that resists and opposes Jesus and his purposes of grace. John Owen, in his classic work, you love these old Puritans and how long their titles were. He, his title of the book is The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalence of the Remainders of Indwelling Sin in Believers. So in this long book title, he, he comes to us and he makes this point about remaining sin in our lives. He says this, Awake therefore all of you in whose hearts is anything of the ways of God. Your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you. He is at work by all ways of force and craft. Wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you, in the best that you do and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when they are alone, by night or by day, all is one. Sin is with them. There is a living coal continually in their houses, which, if not looked unto, will fire them, and it may consume them. And so Owen takes what we see, this pattern in the Gospel of Mark, this pattern we see in our own life, and he, he presses, us, presses it into us. There is a living coal in our houses, and if we do not look after it to quench it, to kill it, it may consume us. So with this troubling reality of of sin before us, we have to understand that there is good news for us in the Gospel of Mark. We're not left alone to our, our remaining sin to figure it out by ourselves. And the good news is this. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't simply cast out demons, he doesn't simply heal the sick, he doesn't simply preach to the crowds, but he has a a vested interest in the character transformation of his disciples. He has come to save a people from their sins. And we see this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus called the twelve to himself not simply to, to share the burden of his ministry, We must understand that discipleship is not simply a relationship where we learn new truths that just stretch our minds, nor is it simply a relationship of of labor where we go out and serve King Jesus and his people. Rather, there is something deeper to discipleship. There is something more profound to it. And if we dig down into the foundations of discipleship, we learn that those who follow Jesus must learn to look like and act like and think like and feel like Jesus. Or we could say it a different way. Jesus' purposes in discipleship is to transform us into his very likeness. In fact, as we travel closer and closer to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark, not only does Jesus speak more forcefully and clearly about his suffering, his work that he's going to do on the cross where he's going to die, his, his future resurrection, but he also more forcefully and clearly deals with the life of sin and the needed work of transformation that must take place in his disciples. 
And we see this fact that, that the disciples of Jesus must not only intellectually grasp the cross, understand that the Messiah must suffer, die, and be raised, and trust in the cross, but the disciples themselves must actually grasp a cross with their own hands and have the cross branded upon their own wills and affections and minds. We see Jesus doing this work of transformation as he travels to the cross with his disciples. He points in this direction when he, when he calls to his disciples saying, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Jesus does the same type of work when he says, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And so last Sunday, Jesus took up this needed work of character transformation in his disciples by placing before his disciples two redemptive parables. What does it look like to welcome Jesus in your life? Well, it looks like embracing those on the lowest rung of the social ladder. It looks like embracing a lowly child. What does it look like to faithfully serve in the kingdom of God? Well, it looks like handing a cup of water to a disciple of Jesus for the sake of Jesus. And in our text before us this morning, Jesus continues his operation on our hearts. He continues this work of transformation by applying redemptive logic to our hearts. So he moves from parables to logical sayings. And as we look into our text this morning, we can break up our text into three questions. This is how we're going to work through the text. The first question is this, who are these words for? And then we're going to ask a second question, why do we need these words? And we're going to follow up with a third, what are we to do with these words that Jesus gives us? So looking at the first question, who are these words for? So in verses 42 through 50, Jesus' logic is sharp and it is raw. He speaks of drowning. He speaks of the gory work of amputation. Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. He speaks of the horrors of God's coming wrath, the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. And so while we have heard Jesus' rebukes of the scribes and the Pharisees, while we've witnessed Jesus' disappointment in Israel, we have yet to see the depth of emotion and the intensity of emotion that we find in the passage before us. And in our own experience of hearing hellfire preaching, we might be tempted to think that Jesus has now, in verses 42 through 50, begun to address the scribes and the Pharisees. Perhaps Jesus looks at the scribes and Pharisees now and he's addressing them for their religious prudishness. Or perhaps he's, he's turning his attention now to the nation of Israel and he's, and he's excoriating them for their continued unbelief. But the surprising matter is that Jesus does not give these intense warnings or sharp logical statements to the crowds or his religious opponents. He does not save his emotional intensity for these people. Rather, he places all of this before his own disciples, men who have already committed themselves to Jesus in the way of Jesus. If we look back to chapter 9, verse 33, where this whole setting begins, we learn the context of this situation, this conversation. Mark tells us, And they, the twelve, and Jesus came to Capernaum. And and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? So all of this teaching that follows this comes out of this conversation that Jesus starts 
in the house at Capernaum. In fact, this preaching we hear in our text comes right on the heels of John's statement to Jesus in verse 38. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to to stop him because he was not following us. And so what we see is that these words, this emotion, is directed towards Jesus' disciples. In fact, if you were to have your cross-reference Bible with you this morning, you would find that these sharp and logical sayings that we find in Mark chapter 9 appear elsewhere in the Bible. They appear in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. They appear in Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. They appear in Luke chapter 17, verse 2. And in each one of these settings, Jesus is found instructing, preaching to his disciples. And so right away, we get an important point of application. Lest we think we are beyond the instruction of Jesus, we have to reckon, we have to understand that these sharp and logical sayings that both threaten the the terrors of God's wrath and promise the blessings, the glory of the kingdom of God are for us who are in Christ Jesus. They are, are for us whether we've walked with Jesus for one day or whether we've called upon Jesus Christ for many years. In the context of these verses, Jesus is instructing his disciples ought to make these words burn in our ears. It's as if the the context of Mark 9 is calling out to us, do not think that these words are for someone else. Do not skim over these words. Do not think that these words are directed at unbelievers. Do not think that these words are for another class of Christians that you have now surpassed and, and moved past in your Christian life. Instead, the context of Mark chapter 9 calls out to us and says, place these words before your eyes. Know that these words belong to you. They are Christ's words to you today. You must deal with them. And so now that we've answered the question of who, we have to move to a more difficult question. And the question is, is why? Why would Jesus put these words before his disciples? And why do we need to deal with these words as disciples of Jesus? And as we review the context of our passage, the situation that Jesus and his disciples are in, we begin to discover an answer. The disciples in their sin radically devalued what was actually at stake in discipleship. Even more, they radically misunderstood the implications of Jesus' ministry. In their sin, these men thought the most important issue of the day was who had first rank among them. Who's going to take the mantle of leadership among the twelve? That's what they thought was the most important. And so they argued about it. That's where they invested their emotions and energy. In their sin, we, we see that they were anxious to defend and consolidate their own unique ministry and social influence within the life of Israel. We're going to hinder that man from casting out demons Because we want to be the only ones who have that power. So that's what we see these men laboring for and fighting for and expending all their energy for. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is our issue in sin as well. When we speak harshly to our spouses, when we're impatient with our children, when we react in a fit of anger, when we're controlled by lust and we look upon that which defiles our eyes, does it not have something to do with what we think is ultimately important and ultimately desirable? And in these moments when we sin, we consider our own pleasure, our own pride, our own rights as ultimately important and ultimately desirable, like the disciples 
bit. But in our sin, our vision of life, our vision of what is important and desirable is radically screwed up. And through these sharp and logical sayings, Jesus comes to us and he he works redemption. He works to recalibrate our vision to see what is ultimately desirable and ultimately important. And as we look into these logical sayings that Jesus places before us, we find two realities emerge from our text. And the first is this. Through these sayings, Jesus works to awaken our dull and distracted senses to the preciousness of God's glorious kingdom. So while on the surface we might consider Jesus' logic in verses 43 through 48 extreme or absurd or unsettling, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. When we, when we probe deeper into these words, we actually find the incalculable value of the kingdom of God. We have to understand here that Jesus is not calling for some form of extreme asceticism where we stop caring for our bodies, nor is Jesus calling for some kind of masochism where we actually do harm to our own bodies. Rather, Jesus is making a powerful point in these verses. What is more valuable to us as human beings than our eyes or our hands or our feet? Just think about it. With our eyes, we we see, we experience the world around us. What is more precious than sight? With our hands, we we do things. We accomplish work. We, we, We move the world around us. What is more precious than our hands? What about our feet? With our feet, we we walk and we, we travel. What is more precious than the gift of mobility? No rational human being would, would put a price on any of these precious things. No rational human being would give up any of these privileges. But Jesus comes to us in these verses and, and he says to us that there is something more precious to us than our eyes or our hands or our legs. He preaches to us. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. And what is this precious reality that is driving Jesus' sharp logic? Well, it's true life. It is entrance into the kingdom of God. And what must drive our vision of killing sin or putting aside of all that causes us to stumble or others to stumble? Well, it must be a vision of the kingdom of God. It must be that kingdom announced in Jesus' preaching. The time is filled and the the kingdom of God is at hand. It must be the kingdom explained in Jesus' parables. It must be the kingdom powerfully present in Jesus' ministry. It must be the kingdom firmly established in Jesus' death and resurrection. And Jesus preaches to us, this kingdom that you see in my ministry is better than the most precious body parts you have. It is better than your life itself. But as we look at Jesus' words this morning, this is not the only reality that Jesus presses upon his dull and distracted disciples. He labors that they might see the preciousness of the kingdom of God, but he he labors so that they might see and understand a second reality, that they might see and fear and taste the terror of God's wrath. As Jesus deals with his disciples' continual engagement and practice of sin, he is not shy nor is he reserved to bring to their hearts the doctrine of God's displeasure of sin and those who practice sin. 
And so we can ask, well, what will happen if these men do not take the necessary efforts to keep from sinning? What will happen to these men if they stumble, if they falter in their discipleship? And Jesus, in our text, presses several metaphors upon us, and we can just camp out on each one of them. In verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So we really don't have millstones today, but in the ancient world, a millstone was a large flat stone and it was so big that it would have to be turned by a donkey or several donkeys and it would grind out the grain. And Jesus produces this disturbing image of this, of this large grind millstone placed around a man's neck like a collar and then thrown into the sea, dragging him down where he will die. And, and what Jesus says to us, look at that man who drowns in the sea. That's what's going to happen to all of those who do not stop sinning. Or verse 43, Jesus says, It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. In your Bibles, if you're reading from the ESV this morning, you'll notice a footnote after the word hell. There's a literal word given in this verse, and it appears in verses 45 and 47, and it's the word Gehenna, or in the Hebrew, the Valley of Hinnom. And so in the, in the time of Jesus, this reference had a historical significance to Israel. Under the wicked reign of kings like Ahaz and Manasseh, this valley, Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, was the site of human child sacrifice. It's where these kings brought their children and sacrificed them to false gods. And then during the reforms of the righteous king Josiah, Josiah came and he turned the valley of Hinnom or or the valley of Gehenna into a garbage dump that he would burn with fire to desecrate this, this terrible place. And so in the time of Jesus, Gehenna was a symbol regularly used to describe what God's judgment would be like for the wicked. And it says if Jesus is here, he's like pointing to his disciples, look at that desecrated burning garbage dump. That is a lot of all of those who make a practice of sin. There is a small taste of what God's wrath is like. Verses 47 and verse 48. Jesus goes on, It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah, the last verse in Isaiah. And at this point in the book of Isaiah, it's a disturbing scene where the redeemed of the Lord experience the salvation of God. And after experiencing the salvation of God, they they go out into the earth and they gaze upon all those who resisted and opposed God's purposes of grace. And it's a grisly scene there, dead bodies strewn about the whole earth. And these dead bodies are continually eaten by worms that do not die And they are burned continually with fires that cannot be quenched. And so when we stack all of this imagery upon each other, it is overwhelming. What does Jesus see as ultimately important in his ministry? Well, he points us straight to the wrath of God. And what must drive our vision of killing sin? What must drive our vision of putting aside all that causes us to stumble and cause others to stumble? 
well, it must be a vision of God's hatred of sin. This holy hatred that is vividly sketched before as Jesus points to this man drowning in the sea with, with no escape. He points us to being tossed into a burning garbage dump. He points us to God's end time judgment. As we let these metaphors, as we let these sayings settle in upon us, Jesus uses such sharp and piercing logic because he desires that we might truly see what is at stake in discipleship. Even more, he presses upon us with these words that we might understand the the true nature of discipleship. We have to understand that discipleship at its foundation is a whole-souled, whole-bodied allegiance to Jesus. When Jesus comes to us in the preaching of the gospel, he does not just want a decision for him and his kingdom. He does not want us just to be intellectually informed about him and his kingdom, but he desires all of us, our souls, our bodies, our minds, our intellects, our hands, our feet, our eyes, our emotions. He wants the whole package, and that is what Jesus is driving at through these sharp and logical sayings. He says, I want all of you. So we've answered two of our three questions so far. We've, we've asked the question, well, who? Who are these words for? In the context of Mark chapter 9 answers, these words are for the disciples of Jesus. They're for us. And we ask the question, why do we need these words? And the answer is because in sin we lose sight of, which that, of that which is ultimately important and desirable. And this brings us to our last question. How are, we, how are we to use these words in discipleship? What are we to do with these words? How are we to practice these words? There are several uses that we need to consider this morning. The first use is this. We must use these words from Jesus to feel. Not only must our minds and actions be conformed to Christ, but our very emotions must be conformed into the image of Christ. And I'm sure that Jesus felt great passion as he heard his disciples argue about who was the greatest and as he witnessed their efforts to hinder others' ministry. And I'm sure that Jesus felt great passion as he spoke these words to his men. And I'm sure that the 12 disciples, as their words were, as their minds were filled with Jesus' words, they felt his love and concern and intensity. And as Jesus spoke of the worth of the kingdom and as he detailed the costly action required to enter the kingdom and as he described the terrors of God's wrath, he aimed to change the very emotional makeup of his men. We have to understand that in sin, our emotional constitution has been warped. We delight and enjoy what God hates. And conversely, we hate and abhor what God loves. But Jesus' words are grace to us this morning because they come to our warped emotional state and they begin to change us. Jesus reveals to us the proper emotions that ought to fill our souls. He shows us the heightened intensity that we ought to have when discussing and thinking about the life of sin. He reveals the abhorrence, the disgust that we ought to have against acts and desires that displease God. He displays the yearning that we ought to have and operate with for the kingdom of God. And Jesus desires that we bring these words near to ourselves. They provide us a standard reference point for our emotions. They they guide our emotions. And so in light of these words this morning, we can ask ourselves, do, do I feel the same way that Jesus feels towards the kingdom of God? Do I see its preciousness, its value, and does that operate in my life? 
we can also ask, do I feel the same way that Jesus feels towards the life of sin? Do I hate it? Do I recoil at it? Do I speak with the same intensity? Do I think with the same intensity? Do I feel with the same intensity that Jesus does? This brings us to a second use. We must use these words to think differently. Jesus preaches with logic. These are if and then statements, and he does so to inform our decisions and the consequences to our decisions. And the logic of Jesus is put before us. If you don't kill sin in your life, if you don't cast aside that which will make you stumble or others stumble, you will not gain the kingdom of God. That connection is explicit and clear. If you do not put to death sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus teaches that the road of the kingdom of God is paved in obedience. That is the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus desires this morning that we would reckon with our sin, that we would fight against sin intellectually. So how do we do this? Robert Murray McShane, an old dead Scottish pastor, teaches how to do this. In one of his journals, we find McShane intellectually arguing with sin. And he says, Every sin is something away from my greatest enjoyment. The devil strives night and day to make me forget this or disbelieve it. My true happiness is to go sin no more. And so what do we find Robert Murray McShane doing in his journal? Well, we find him taking up his mind and seeking to put to death sin in his life. He is making arguments in his mind. He's making logical conclusions in his mind. He's bringing this all to bear upon his mind. If we take Jesus' words seriously, we need to do the same sort of thing in our minds with the life of sin. We ought to say, as McShane says, every sin is something away from my greatest enjoyment. And we can add to McShane's logic, we can say, every act of obedience is a step towards my greatest enjoyment. My true happiness is to, to follow closely in the path of Jesus. My true happiness is to enter into the blessed kingdom of God. So, brothers and sisters, we must load our minds with the redemptive logic of Jesus to withstand temptation and trial. This brings us to a third use. We must act upon Jesus' words. We must do something with them. If we legitimately feel and legitimately think as Jesus would have us, we must act as Jesus would have us. Even more, if what Jesus says is true, that before us stands the eternal, blessed, glorious kingdom of God, and before us stands the, the terrors of God's wrath, we must move with deliberate and decisive action. All the imagery, all the emotion packed into Jesus' words call for action. Anything that would impede us from entering the kingdom of God must be cut off, whether that be our hand or our foot or our eyes. Anything that would propel us headlong towards destruction must be gouged out, no matter how dear, no matter how costly. Jesus calls to us. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? And if we get Jesus' words, we actually have to do something. We actually have to put to death sin. So brothers and sisters, 
As we consider our text this morning, the enemy has been named. Who do we fight against? Well, we fight against this remaining principle of sin within us. And the consequences of failure have been outlined to us. If we do not put to death sin, we will die to our sin. And we have seen the glorious picture of what awaits for those who put to death sin and follow closely after Jesus. They will inherit the glorious kingdom of God. So Jesus comes to us this morning in light of this text. He asks us, are you walking in faith and repentance? Are you waging the good fight against the enemy who is not only upon you but in you? Or we can return back to John Owen's words where he says, Awake, therefore, all of you in whose hearts is anything of the ways of God. Your enemy is not only upon you, but in you. He is at work by all ways of force and craft, wherever you are, whatever you are about. This law of sin is always in you. And Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your good word. We need it. We are like the disciples and we are so easily led astray. We focus on that which is not important and that which is not ultimately desirable. So, Father, we pray that you would use Jesus' words this morning to reframe, reshape us, and transform us into his glorious image. Oh, may we be a people who think and live and act differently, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.